Welcome, everyone, to episode 33 of the Bobcast and the final episode in the Danzig Misfits trilogy. Yeah, this is it. All done. All done. Well, maybe. We'll see. It's very fitting also that today would have been Elvis's birthday, January 8th, 2020, as our subject of tonight's episode was very fond of the king. Yes, in this one, I'm closing out the saga of the Dark Lord of the Donuts, Glenn Danzig. It's going to be pretty much all about Danzig and the solo Danzig project. Here, I'm going to get to that in a sec. What a saga. This has been a good one. Now, in the first two episodes, I covered a pretty detailed history of the Misfits from the forming of the band in 1977 up to the breakup of the Danzig version of the band in 1983. Next, I talked a little bit about Sam Hain and also what the uh, Boffo brothers of Jerry and Doyle were up to in between the breakup of the original Danzig Misfits and the Reunion Era Misfits of today. Surprisingly, too, remember I was saying in the last Misfits episode, well, you know, Danzig's hinting that it might be over, but oh, guess what? They had another show. They had a, He only had to do 10 shows, right? That was the legal agreement that he had with Jerry. Only had to do 10, and they had surpassed the 10 shows by adding that show in Philadelphia. Well, guess what? Oh, guess what? May 2nd, 2020, the original, you know, quote unquote, Misfits are playing a show at the Domination Festival in Mexico City at May 2nd, 2020. Uh, Def Leppard is head headlining the night before. Who would the fuck would have ever seen that coming? You know, whatever, 40 fucking years ago. The Misfits headlining one night, Def Leppard the night before. That's like some weird... We do live in a fucking bizarro world right now, don't we? Like, it's a really strange place, but yeah. So, ha, ha, ha. I wonder, all that money, right? Danzig's going, fuck, I can't turn this down. Dude's worth... His net worth is like $6 million right now, or it was a couple years ago, something like that. I looked that up. I, I'm having a feeling that this reunion shows, or the series of reunion shows, I should say, that he's been a part of, He's definitely significantly added to those millions by doing that, and that must make his tiny little black heart happy. Well, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. In the last episode, the Danzig Trilogy Part 2, I also talked a tiny bit about the solo Danzig band. This is where I'm going to get much more in-depth on some of the goings-on with the Danzig band, a lot more detail on that solo dancing band. It wasn't really a solo band. You'll see, it's pretty interesting stuff. Now, much of the focus of the prior episodes in this series was on some shenanigans. There was a lot of history too, but I really tried to kind of focus on the shenanigans, the antics of these jabrones from Lodi, New Jersey, right? I really did, because that's interesting stuff. Now, I know that. Those shenanigans especially, especially were focused on Jerry quite a bit. A little bit of Glenn Danzig, too. But Jerry and his bullshit, now that was a big part of the last two episodes. Christ the Conqueror. Do you remember that? Fuck, holy shit. How can you forget? That was like the funniest shit that I've ever read. Oh, my God, yeah. Even Jerry thinks that I read an interview researching for this podcast. And, pardon me, Bobcast. And even Jerry kind of looked back on that and laughed. And you know what, though? The son of a bitch, he wouldn't own up to the fact that he had gone full-blown Bible thumper. He ha wouldn't own up. To he said, oh, you know, yeah, I kind of, I was going through a phase where I was questioning things. No, Jerry, just fucking say, 
Like, no, I was trying to be a Christian metal band because that's where the money was. You know, just fucking say it, dude. You know, that's the thing. I don't, he can do or say anything he wants, but just own up to your bullshit. Own up to your shit. That's what I'm talking about. Christ the Conqueror. Own that, Jerry. You fuck yeah, man. You made that. You need to own it. Okay? Okay. Good. I hope, are you listening, Jerry? I hope not. Because I don't, I'd still, I'm always scared I'm going to get fucking sued by that guy. I'm a little fish in a big pond. I know that I'm a tiny fish in a big pond. I know that. But God, you don't, that guy has long arms, man. He does. All right. Let's also not forget that I did talk about the Prince of Poop, uh, Michael Graves, a little bit. Yuck. Ugh. Don't get the taste of that guy out of my mouth. Fuck that dude, man. He's a piece of shit. Interesting side note about Graves. Like I was saying, I was talking about him in episode two of the trilogy. I recently joined a Danzig memes page on Facebook because that shit is comedy gold. It's hilarious. It really is. And those people on that face that Facebook page, this Danzig memes page, I'm not going to say their real name. I don't want to get banned. I just like got in with these people, you know, kind of undercover operation for me. They fucking hate Michael Graves so much. It's about half Danzig memes and half like just murderous, vile shit talking about him. Like I'm like, God, I don't like the guy. I say, fuck that guy. That means I really don't like him. I don't know him. I shouldn't say I don't like him. I don't like the way he acts. Okay, let's say that. I don't like the way the guy, the way that Michael Graves acts. They just post the nastiest, meanest shit about the guy. It's like, dude, he just sang in the band. Uh, he's Yeah, fuck that dude. Keep in mind, though, that the people, the mentality that we're dealing with here on this Dancing Memes page they literally do think Danzig shits gold in every sense of the word. They worship the ground that Glenn Danzig walks on. So if that tells you where they're coming from, that might give you a little bit of an idea. I don't know. You be the judge. Let's take this opportunity tonight with this episode to focus on the man himself, Glenn Danzig. I'm going to talk a lot about Danzig, okay? Who he is, what he's supposedly like, what kind of things does he like, I'm going to throw some fantastic uh, dancing jokes at you throughout this episode. There's five in total. Oh, yeah. And the, all of my creation, too. I had a little help. I'm not going to tell you how I did it. That's a trade secret. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I have some good ones. Watch out for those. There's one coming up soon. Okay. I'm going to say this, too. I do believe Glenn Danzig is, a, at the very least, he's a very, very interesting guy. I think he is. He, to me, he is, obviously. I spent quite a lot of time talking about him, and there is a possibility that uh, I can't even say that right now. I was going to say this at the end, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. I'm fucking completely George Lucasing on you guys. After I scripted this whole thing, I go, you know what? I could fucking easily keep going with this because there's way more shit to talk about. I might. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't decided. I'm not going to come back to this for quite a while, though, Okay. I'm not. I promise you that. This is going to be the last Danzig episode for at least, you know, a couple weeks. <clears throat> I mean, you know, um, uh, maybe, um, uh, I don't know, you know, a month or two or something like that. So <laughs> the other thing, <laughs> I, I say Danzig's a very, very interesting guy. I do know I talk a lot of shit about him and have talked a lot of shit about him in these episodes. That doesn't mean that I don't think that he's an okay person or anything like that, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the very end of the podcast where I will give you my final thoughts 
on Glenn Danzig, the summation of all my research and, you know, really focusing on Danzig through these three episodes has really given me some pretty strong opinions about what kind of person he is. And you're going to have to listen to the whole goddamn episode to find out what those thoughts are. So just stay tuned, would you? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I do also have to say, I absolutely love a lot of the stuff that Danzig has done. I really do. Like, dude, the guy's rat. He has done some really great stuff. Eh, up to the Danzig 4 record. Beyond that, oh, God, you'll see. You'll see. You'll see. He's done some pretty silly stuff since 1994 and the mass exodus of the Biscuits, Erie Bond, John Christ version of Danzig. We're also going to talk about what led up to those core members of the Danzig band leaving his band. There's a lot to cover here, so let's get going. What do you say? Okay, great. We shall. Uh, first of all, though, I have a little something to say to you. Um, why is Danzig always so pissed off, do you think? Oh. You know, I think it might be because he's so short, he's always getting overlooked. Oh, yes, there we go. First joke in a series of knockout punches. Bada bing, bada boom. Here we go. The music at the very beginning of this episode, that's just a little uh, kind of creepy, kind of sad music to get you into the mood. You know, ease you into this. We are talking about the cuckoo count of creepy Glendanzig here. And it's sad because I am sad that the entire Danzig trilogy is at its end until I fucking George Lucas, you guys, and come back with like, oh, guess what? We're not done. We're going to do a prequel. You know, we're going to talk about Danzig when he was in the womb next time or something. Eh, whatever. But moving on, the question of the ages. The question is, what beer am I drinking tonight? Well, guess what, folks? I'm not drinking anything tonight. I'm straight as an arrow for this one. I got to be, uh, you know, on my the top of my game for this episode, I believe. Actually, I didn't have time to go out to Plan 9 and get more beer this week. So, uh, yeah, next next episode you'll get a, another short beer review on some Plan 9 beer. This is a, kind of my normal thing. Either way, later on in the episode, there will be some words from and about Plan 9 Ale House. And also, later on in the episode, a band. This is kind of an unusual thing for me, too. This is something completely different than anything I've done before. The music on this episode, it is the band The Broken Toys of Argentina. Yes, and they are doing a cover of the Misfits song, American Nightmare. Now, that song was off of Legacy Brutality that, that came out you know, after the Misfits had broken up. Now, why that song? That one, that song kind of sums up a little bit of the weirdness of Danzig for me. Danzig wrote the song. He played guitar and bass and sang on the song, and it only appears on that masterpiece of overdubbing that is Legacy of Brutality. You know, He didn't play drums on it. I think Googie played drums on it. But yeah, it's a weird kind of rockabilly song. The original version is. This band, The Broken Toys, they are also a rockabilly band, so it's going to be something a little different for this podcast. First like non-punk rock song I played. I hope you guys are okay with that. It's good to kind of branch out and, and get, you know, dip your toes in something a little different every once in a while, don't you think? I do. Well, that being said, as far as the Broken Toys go, something different, a little rockabilly song. Cool. It's a good song. Trust me. I think you'll like it. I actually like it, and I don't really like rockabilly very much. So there you go. So let's get talking about the man of the hour, Glenn Danzig himself. Uh, but first, did you know I asked Danzig if I could borrow 100 bucks the other day? You know what he said to me? He said, yeah, he couldn't do it. I said, why? Why can't you loan me 100 bucks? He said, well, he said he was a little, uh, he was a little short <clears throat> that week. Oh, yeah. 
Okay, so here we go. Glenn Allen Anzalone was born on June 23rd of 1955 in Lodi, New Jersey. He was the third of four boys in his family. His dad was a TV repairman and a Marine Corvette of World War II and Korea. Crazy, huh? Wow. His mom worked in a record store. So, okay, uh, yeah, interesting. I kind of see where he gets some of his future rebellious spirit and also his love of music, right? Maybe, maybe. Let's see. Let's see. Possibly a very hard-ass dad, a former Marine Corps guy, served in two wars, which is gnarly. TV repairman, not the best job, not the worst job either. A mom who worked in a record store, hopefully that meant she loved music. So, and was probably, you know, the kinder, gentler parent in the Danzig household, or I'm sorry, the Anzalone household, that is. Um, Who knows? Who knows? At any rate, Danzig did say that his early musical influences came mostly from his dad. Yeah, and that was from his dad listening to Elvis records. And also, his brothers were an influence on him. His brothers liked to listen to stuff like Black Sabbath and Blue Cheer. Very interesting. At age 11, the very young Danzig started partying a little bit. Oh, okay, okay, Glenn, all right. Smoking weed, drinking, that led to him getting into fights and getting into trouble with the law. Now, apparently, when Danzig was 15, he stopped doing drugs and using. Well, I think he only, like, smoked weed. I don't know if he did anything else. That's not, like, the worst thing you can do for sure. He did, as far as I know, continue to drink a little bit. I guess there are photos that were taken of him by Erie Vaughn when he was with the Misfits drinking rum and Cokes at a show in, I think, New York City. And Erie says, this is from Erie Vaughn's book, by the way, Erie says that Rum and Cokes were Danzig's drink of choice. I don't think Danzig ever really drank too much. Not that I know of. I think he's one of those dudes, one of those rock and roll you know, dudes that never really developed any significant substance abuse issues like so many music people seem to develop. But good for him. I would guess from what I know about him now is he's just way too focused on the things that he likes, on the work that he does, making music, you know, All the stuff that kind of makes Danzig Danzig, he's too busy doing all that to kind of slow himself down to get fucked up all the time, right? That I mean, I think that's a pretty fair assumption. Now, young Danzig was into collecting comic books, reading stuff by authors Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Baudelaire. He liked B-movies and the like. Now, wait, whoa, 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 back up, back up. Who was Charles Baudelaire? He was a poet who wrote a very famous volume of poems titled The Flowers of Evil, and he is also very well known for translating Edgar Allan Poe into French. Yeah, it's a side note for you. Great. Apparently, young Danzig is kind of an escapist. He was a lover of music and the arts, and he also discovered the love of making music at a very young age. He took piano and clarinet lessons as a little kid and eventually taught himself how to play guitar. Danzig's first music gig? He was a, quote-unquote, drum roadie for a band when he was 11 years old. So he was partying, man. He was hanging out with the band, drinking, smoking weed. Oh, yeah, he was having a good time, wasn't he? Later on, he sang for, you know, you know was the front guy for a couple of Black Sabbath cover bands, and they also did some originals. One of those bands was called Talus, and the other band was called Kudat and Bujang. Let's say that fucking three times fast. Kudat and Bujang, Kudat and Bujang, Kudat and Bujang. I just did. Fuck you. Okay, thank you. Now, after that, after Kudat and Bujang came the Misfits. We've been all through that, so yeah, we don't need to talk about any of that stuff. 
Now, what about, here's something I've always kind of wondered, and I've just kind of taken it, you know, as it was, per se, throughout this whole series. What, what's the origin of the name Danzig? How did he come up with that? Where did he come up with that? Besides the fact that it's a much, much better rock and roll name than Anzalone, right? Yeah, it sure is. Now, according to Jerry Only, who we know is not the most trustworthy source of uh, information in the entire world, Danzig adopted the name soon after the Misfits formed in 1977, and the inspiration for the name was the Danzig Corridor, and that was in between East Prussia and Germany. That was kind of Germany's access, Western Germany's access to East Prussia that got taken away from them after World War I. What tri- kind of triggered all of World War II in a lot of ways was the Germans, the Nazi Germans, wanted the Danzig Corridor back so they had access again to East Prussia, which was traditionally a part of Greater Germany. And that, like I said, that did trigger World War II. Interesting name to pick, Danzig. What was life like for young Danzig growing up in Lodi, New Jersey? Let's get some background on Lodi itself. I haven't really talked too, too much about Lodi. Lodi has a population, even today and back in the 70s as well, that hovers somewhere around 20,000 people. It is considered a suburb of New York City, being it's about 15 miles away from the center of the Bronx, as an example. So it's not far at all. If you look up the distance from Lodi to New York City, or like specifically, I looked up the Bronx, it's about a 40-minute drive, only 15 miles, 40 minutes. That makes sense. A lot of traffic. Get it? Okay, great. Lodi, I don't think, is too big on opportunity or culture. It's kind of a really small town in attitude and geography. It's not a big – it's like two and a half square miles in total size. Yeah, small place. A pretty boring town, in other words, I would say. Danzig did go to and graduated from Lodi High School. He graduated in 1973. As far as I know, the high school era for Danzig was a pretty unremarkable period. There's not a lot of information out there about it. Lodi does have a reputation, did then especially, for being a family town where everybody knew each other, everybody knew everybody's kids, so it's kind of hard to get away with anything without getting caught and getting in trouble, right? But again, you know, that kind of situation, that's pretty boring for teenage kids. I kind of do suspect all those factors and that boredom is one of the things that led up to the creation of the Misfits in a lot of ways, right? Not much to do in the town. You have this kid, this Danzig kid. uh, I'm sorry, at the time, Glenn Anzalone. He was a Sabbath-loving, horn, B-movie-watching, comic, and Edgar Allan Poe-reading kid. What does he want to do? I don't know. Well, guess what? He discovered the Ramones early in the 70s. Combine that with all the other stuff he already likes. You know, not much to do in a town like Lodi. He's very musically inclined. Well, there you go. That's a recipe for the Misfits right there, isn't it? It's pretty pretty interesting, pretty telling, I think. Now, once the Misfits actually got going and started doing stuff, there was a time in the history of Lodi, New Jersey, where Danzig and the Misfits were the coolest kids in town and all the, the people that kind of hung out with them, right? They were, oh, I mean, 20,000 people is not a lot of people. It's the late 70s. Punk thing's kind of new and scary and exciting, and a bunch of the kids in the town kind of gravitated towards the Misfits and thought, these guys are cool. And supposedly, Glenn Danzig was the ringleader of them all. Here's some of the guys in this crew. You had Doyle, Jerry, Erie Vaughn, Steve Zing, Bobby Steele, Mike Morantz. The list goes on and on and on. A bunch of people. 
then the misfits were kind of the king of the shit heap in a lot of ways. Glenn was a very popular guy in the days of the misfits in his hometown. Very popular. And I don't think he really was in high school. I think he was kind of like a quiet loner. So quite a change of pace for him. Now get this. This is also interesting. Danzig lived in Lodi up until 1989, up until uh, the Danzig solo record. The first Danzig solo record had already been out for like a year. Yeah, it was the release of Danzig 2, I think, when he left, or right before it came out or something. Like, that's crazy, huh? Maybe Danzig had a hard time leaving his family. Maybe he was very close to them. I really don't know. By the time he finally left Lodi, he was 33 or 34 years old. Maybe Danzig is a mama's boy. I don't know. I don't know. He's very quiet about his personal life, so he doesn't talk about you know, his personal relationships much, and you will see more of that as this kind of episode continues on, especially towards the very end. So yeah, maybe Danzig was a mama's boy. That would explain a lot, wouldn't it? I don't know. Maybe he had a hard time leaving the place that he was king of the shit heap. Who knows? Who knows? Only Danzig knows. I'm not going to ask the guy because I don't want to get punched by the angry little fellow. Yes, I don't. I don't. Even though I might be able to knock him out. You know, you did have seen that video where he gets knocked out, right? Everybody's fucking seen that. Yeah, we. I, I'm not even going to talk about that. So there's the, uh, that's the early days of Danzig for you. The early life of Danzig in a nutshell. Let's fast forward a bit to the future. The era of the end of Sam Hain and the very beginning of the Danzig solo project. But first, did you read the news yesterday? Yeah. It said Danzig was walking downtown the other day, and he got pickpocketed. Can you believe that shit? Jesus. Yeah, I just don't know how anybody could stoop that low. <laughs> oh, another short joke. Okay, that was the last of the short jokes, by the way. Sorry, Glenn, uh, if you're listening. So let's move on to uh, Danzig here. The year was 1986, and under advisement of then-Metallica bass player Cliff Burton, Music guru of Def Jam, Rick Rubin, went to check out Sam Hain at something called the New Music Seminar in New York City. The Metallica guys were big fans of the Misfits and Sam Hain, especially Cliff Burton. Cliff Burton turned Kirk Hammett and James Hetfield onto the Misfits and Sam Hain, by the way. Interesting, right? Not only would Metallica go on to push the Misfits into millions of people's ear holes and minds with 1987's release... Garage Days Re-Revisited, that EP, remember that? That featured cover songs of the Misfits songs, Last Caress and Green Hell. They were actually going out of their way to tell record label people, hey, you guys should look at this Sam Hain band and sign them. They're fucking great, right? That's pretty nice of them. Super cool. According to Danzig, he first met James Hetfield and Cliff Burton at a Black Flag show, and they became friends after that. Hetfield and Kirk Hammett and Cliff Burton were always kind of spreading the word about how great Danzig was and his bands and that kind of thing. You know, I think I I think back then those guys in Metallica were pretty nice guys. They were just starting out. They weren't big or anything. They were touring a lot, doing a lot of stuff, but they weren't playing like arenas or anything like that. They hadn't gotten huge or anything. I think they were pretty cool. And they slowly kind of got shittier and shittier through the years as they went. Have you ever seen Monster? I haven't, but I've heard it's fucking awful. Now, I guess that kind of thing does happen a lot. They're very famous people. Unfortunately, Cliff Burton never got to the point where Metallica was just gigantic and huge. He was a rad, rad dude. He loved punk rock. They're really a cool dude by all accounts. R.I.P., by the way, to Cliff Burton for sure. So Rick Rubin goes, he sees Sam Hain. And he completely, like, falls in love with the way Danzig sings. 
and dancing stage persona and all that good stuff, essentially. Not so much with the band. He actually didn't really like the band that much. But with Danzig and his voice and like the structure of the songs and all that, he thought Danzig was just the shit. Now, when Ruben went to this Sam Haynes show to check him out, he was pretty well known for his work with hip-hop and rap groups like LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, and Run DMC. Side note, some little side trip here about Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons co-founded Def Jam Records in 1984. In 1986, Rubin began working with Slayer and produced the record Rain and Blood. That was his very first metal project. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? So after Rubin did some schmoozing of Danzig, he'd take him out to eat, take him to like wrestling matches and shit. They'd hang out and talk about music, all buddy-buddy. Danzig decided, okay, well, I'm going to sign to your label. And by that point, Rick Rubin had created a new label called Deaf American because it didn't really fit the music that he was trying to kind of get out there with those other hip-hop and rap groups, right? So he started Deaf American. Danzig signed in 1987. Rubin right away pretty much wanted to change the way that Danzig was doing stuff. Rubin wanted a super group of people playing the music with Danzig and having Danzig sing and like this super group of guys behind him forming this new band. Ruben was the one that convinced Danzig to change the name of the band from Sam Hain to Danzig, just his last name. One reason for that was he felt Glenn Danzig would have more freedom to do things the way he wanted to. It would be Danzig's like project, essentially. Well, really, like Danzig and Ruben's project, essentially, right? Uh-huh. As we're going to see here, Danzig was going to be the boss. Oh, yeah. Who's the boss, huh? That's right, Tiny Dancer, Tony Danza, whatever. Ruben was pretty much the guy calling the shots there in those early days. You're going to see here in a, in a little bit. The search for this supergroup began, and Danzig did have some input on who got to be in the band. One thing that he did, which was really, really cool, super cool, is Ruben wanted to get rid of Erie Vaughn. And Danzig said, no, he, uh, you're not getting rid of him. He's my buddy. He's been with me for years. Uh, I'm not getting rid of him. He demanded that he keep Erivan as his bass player in his band. Ruben relented, said, okay, fine, you can keep him. That's great. He's just a bass player. Who cares? Ruben and Danzig eventually settled on two possible drummers for this new band, Chuck Biscuits of TOA, Circle Jerks, and Black Flag fame, and Phil Filthy Animal Taylor of Motorhead. Oh, yeah, did you know that? I didn't know that until I started looking into this. It looks like Phil was out of the band Motorhead between the years of 84 to 87. So when Dan Ruben and Danzig were looking for drummers, Phil was free. I spelled that P-H-R-E. You get it? A little play on words. Yeah, that's the only thing that sucks about podcasts. You can't really get all the visual humor. You hear that? That's my paper rattling. Yeah, only I can see that. That's ha -ha, pretty funny. They finally settled on Biscuits to play drums for the band, I guess, Phil was going back to Motorhead, or they kind of decided, eh, he's too old and set in his ways. We want somebody a little bit younger and more malleable that'll kind of do things the way we want them to do, the we being Danzig and Ruben. So they called up Biscuits and said, what's it going to take for you to play in this new band? And Biscuits said, uh, just buy me a plane ticket. So that was it. Biscuits was in after that. They had a drummer. In the last episode, episode two, I went over how John Christ joined the band. So I'm not really going to get into that. The interesting thing about John Christ was he was the least experienced member of the new band. Once he got in, 
John Christ had only played in a couple of uh, like bar bands at the time, some metal bands prior to playing in Danzig. You had Erie Vaughn, bassist of Sam Hain, Biscuits, this totally legendary punk drummer guy, and some random Hessian dude from Maryland that was a, like a really ripping guitar player. That was the basis of the new Danzig band. Now, Erie Vaughn says he felt like he was the least talented guy in the new band. I thought he did great. I thought he sounded absolutely fantastic. To me, he did. He sounded fantastic. Ruben did not like him. for say. He wanted him out of the band. He did not like Erie Vaughn. He did not. I guess when Erie would show up to like practices and sessions and whatever the fuck the major label people make bands do, and he'd have his devil lock and kind of like dressed like a kind of horror punk goth style, Ruben would go up to him and say like, talk shit to him like you sure you want to look like that you know we're trying to kind of reach a broader audience here don't you think you should kind of look a little different than this you know like what the what a fucking asshole you know blah 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 broader audience fuck you dude Ruben was for sure trying to mold this band into something that he wanted envisioned and something that would make money that was his whole goal really of making this group to make a bunch of fucking money for sure but Erie Vaughn did change his look, so there you go. In Erie's book, Misery Obscura, which I'll, I'll talk about that later for sure, because that's very important to this podcast, to this whole episode for sure. Erie had said he was burning out on that look. He was getting older and more mature and kind of thought, well, maybe I should. Maybe I should change my look. I'll listen to Rick Rubin, and yes, I will change my look. Now, keep in mind, Erie, this guy, went to his high school graduation in a full-on Count Dracula costume, cape and all, completely shaved his head bald. Him and a friend of his that was graduating as well from Lodi High School, just, in his words, to piss everybody off. And that was only a few years before this. So, sure, he matured. He did cave in to the pressure a little bit, it sounds like, from Ruben. Change your look. Okay, maybe he was sick of it, too. I don't know. People change. There you go. So, I'm not talking shit. I do think Erie Vaughn is a rad, rad dude. I'm going to talk about his book at closer to the end of the podcast. You should get it. I'll tell you where you can get it, how much it is, all that. He's fucking fantastic, dude. Now, before this new band, this new Danzig band, started working on that very first record, they recorded a song for a soundtrack that Rick Rubin was producing for a movie called Less Than Zero. That song was called You and Me, Less Than Zero, in parentheses, that was credited to on that soundtrack, Glenn Danzig and the Power and Fury Orchestra. Yes, Power and Fury Orchestra. Ooh, okay. Who were those guys? Well, I don't know. Actually, those guys were Chuck Biscuits and John Christ. They played on the song. Danzig sang. The only member of the new band that wasn't on that recording was Erie Vaughn, because in Erie Vaughn's words, he just didn't want to play the song. He didn't like it. So they got a guy named George Dracolius to play the bass. And George apparently was Rick Rubin's kind of whipping boy and yes man kind of thing, like his assistant helper. Yes, Rick. Oh, what do you want? What what cream in your coffee, Rick? Okay, how many? Oh, yeah, that kind of thing. And everybody thought, oh God, like he's just Rick Rubin just treats this guy like shit. But he played bass on the song and he actually sounds pretty good. The guy ended up becoming a big producer in his own right, far after these days for sure. Rick Rubin also got Danzig a gig writing a song for Roy Orbison for that same soundtrack called Life Fades Away yeah, that was in the movie and the, on the soundtrack as well. Danzig can write a song. I'll tell you what, because that Roy Orbison song is fucking tight, man. I like it. It's good. I listened to it several times. 
in the process of researching this podcast, I really do like it. I really enjoyed that song. That You and Me, Less Than Zero song, eh. It's not good. It's not like metal. It's not punk. It's this weird kind of rock and roll, doo-wop kind of, yeah, it's just not really that great. Not for me. Danzig was really channeling his kind of inner crooner for that one, and it sounds a little silly, I think. Now, after I listen to that song a few times, I go, oh, okay, I see why Erie Vaughn was not into it, because it's not not their style at all. It's more like, honestly, you know what that song sounds like? More like an Everly Brothers song to me. Yeah, it's not that great. So in 1987, the fellows of the Danzig band started recording for that very first full-length Danzig album, and those recording sessions were supposedly brutal. Ruben was on all of their respective nuts, day in and day out, making them all do take after take after take until they got it just how he wanted it. He was the producer of the record, and he was fucking harsh. He was like hardcore, I guess. Here's an example. Ruben would make Biscuits do a take on the drums of a song, like play the whole song, right? Biscuits would have to drop his sticks, run into the booth. How was that? Ruben would say, no, you know, you need to go psh, psh, boom, psh, psh, boom, like right here, like hit the hi-hat, you know. Biscuits is going, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Like, okay. So he'd go back out, sit down behind the drums, do it again. Okay, there they go. They do it again. Come back in. No, you didn't hit the bass drum at just the right, you know, you needed... And it was like on and on and on. Erie Vaughn talks about this. And he's like, Jesus, man, poor Chuck sitting there like just his head's fucking spinning. Go, what the fuck is this guy talking about? You know, but he did. You listen to that record. The drums are like perfect on it. Absolutely perfect. So maybe he did something good. I don't know. Yeah, poor Chuck Biscuits. So Erie said regarding the record, he'd never worked that hard on any recording he had ever done. And he was a veteran of several recordings, too. I mean, he really was. He he wasn't some new guy that didn't know what he was doing. They, he had never worked on a major label production either. So there you go. What do you think about the sound of that record? I remember when that record came out, I got it, and I fucking loved it. I t- completely loved it. I did. I thought it sounded a little weird, though. And a lot of people complained about it, like especially people that I knew that were fans of like Sam Hain and the Misfits said, man, fuck, this doesn't sound good. It's just, it's really dry and kind of weird sounding. Weird. Here's why. Apparently, Rick Rubin was totally in love with ACDC and with this recording specifically, wanted to go for that kind of stripped down, like bare bones sound. Refer back to another record that Rubin had produced not terribly long before this in 1987. He produced the Cult's record, Electric. Does that give you a hint, an idea? That's a pretty stripped-down record, too. I think Danzig, the first Danzig record, is stripped down even more to where it's, like, fucking barely there, right? But it sounds okay. I mean, it's good. The songs, the songs are what make that record, to me. They do. That record did come out, that very first Danzig solo record. And now I do have to issue a correction on something I said in episode two of this series. I had said that that record came out, and boom, Danzig was, like, an instant success. Big hit. Off he went, you know, superstardom. Nope, not true. The record was fairly well received, but it was not a huge hit right away. Thank you very much, Davey, for giving that tip. I, I do appreciate it when people tell me, you know, hey, you weren't right about what you said about this, you know, because I go, okay, well, I'm going to correct that because I want to be truthful, right? So there you go. Thanks again, Davey. The first record was not a smash hit from the very start. 
I'll tell you when it does become a smash hit because eventually it did, but it took a while. It definitely took a while. So after that first record came out, the band toured around a little bit. They went on one tour with Metallica in Europe. They also all moved to L.A. from Lodi. They are all kind of living in the Lodi area in 1989. They all picked up and moved to L.A. In 1990, the band Danzig released their second full-length album, Danzig to Lucifuge, or as I like to refer to it as, Lucifuge, um, for the comedy, comedic-hearted person, I should say. It's Lucifuge. That record's, eh, it's good. Eh, yeah, it's okay. It's not bad. I like it. I actually kind of like it. It's slower. There's a little bit more of that kind of blues influence throughout, which I'm not a big fan of, but you know what? It's not horrible. I hated it the first time I heard that record. The first time I heard Lucifuge, I was like, man, fuck, what the fuck is this? Giving it more chances since then, there are some pretty fucking good songs on that record. So give it another chance. If you haven't listened to it in a long time, I recommend it. It's okay. It's a pretty good it's a pretty good record in the catalog of Danzig stuff, for sure. So yeah, it ain't half bad. Ruben did change his production style for Lucifuge, and this one was much more well-received critically for the overall sound of the record, because critics even didn't like the way that very first Danzig record sounded. They gave him a lot more credit on Danzig too, saying, oh yeah, yeah, he got his shit together. This record actually sounds good. And it does. The production quality of it sounds fantastic. It really does sound good. By the time their third record came out, and that was 1992's Danzig 3, How the Gods Kill, Ruben had completely backed away from producing Danzig stuff, okay? He was gone. He gave complete control over to Glenn Danzig to produce the record himself. The band was way happier in this situation. Now, keep in mind, up till then, you know, they recorded these two full lengths. They toured, toured, toured. They were a busy, busy band. They were tight. They were good. I mean, they had their shit together. They were not these new guys all in this band that had just started working together. They had been playing together for, what, four years by the time How the God's Kill came out. Danzig's at the knobs. They're all buddies. Now, they're all friends at this time. Erie Vaughn had said they were knocking these songs out on Danzig 3 in like one or two takes every song. Just boom, nailed. They were that tight and that good. Now, in 1993, the band released a kind of a combination a studio and live EP that was called Thrall Demon Sweat Live that had three brand new songs, three brand new studio songs, and four songs that were recorded live on Halloween of 1992 at the Irvine Meadows Amphitheater in Southern California. Now, all the while, like I was saying, the band had been touring regularly, doing band stuff, blah, blah, blah. When's this big break for dancing going to come up? Wasn't that? But didn't I mention that a minute ago? Well, the big break, the song Mother. A live version of the song appeared on that Thrall EP. A video of the song featuring live performance clips was hitting very big on MTV. Very, very big, in large part, thanks to Beavis and Butthead. It's true. It's true. I actually remember seeing it back in those days. Like, whoa, whoa, Beavis and Butthead are playing Danzig. Because I knew about, you know, I had had this record since 1988, the first record. I'm sorry, not Thrall. I don't think I ever bought anything after Lucifudge. But Beavis and Butthead really helped push the song Mother and that video into the limelight. It's true. Yeah, totally true. Danzig wanted to release... A single version, like a little, just a CD single of Mother remixed. They had gone back and kind of redone part of the guitar solos in the studio. The record label was hesitant. And they said, 
Yeah, that singles don't sell. Give Danzig, give me an example of when a single actually did well. So Danzig came back to them and said, Oh, you want you want an example? I'll give you two examples. Here's the first one. Garage Days Re-Revisited and Nine Inch Nails Broken, which were both massive, massive hits and sold like millions of copies, okay? Man, that shut those record company dipshits up right away. Mother 93 was released as a single and hit number 43 on the Billboard Hot 100 back when Billboard rankings still actually meant something at all. That led to the Thrall EP and the first Danzig record going gold and eventually platinum because Danzig fucking blew up. They were getting tons of air, radio airplay for the song Mother, heavy rotation for the new Mother video on MTV that was in that Beavis and Butthead show. New, new. Whoa, what are you talking about? Well, here, let's go back in time a little bit. You see, back in 1988, the band did film a video for the song Mother, which was supposed to be the main single off of that very first Danzig record. In that original video for Mother, there was some kind of a like satanic ritual and a chicken getting sacrificed above a half-naked woman. Uh, MTV initially saw that video and said, no, oh no, mm -mm. Uh, we cannot air this. This is much to what the fuck is, why are you guys even bringing this to us? Basically, they went back, they edited the gnarly shit out. We're supposed to resubmit the clean version of that video to MTV, but Rick Rubin fucked up and took MTV. The original version of the video told them, oh, hey, you know, here's the edited version. Go, you can, can you guys run this? Oh, yeah, okay, we'll do that for you. Headbangers Ball, whatever. Yeah, we'll do that for you. They played it. Um, it was the unedited version, like I said. All kinds of religious groups freaked the fuck out, like started bombing MTV with, you know, like letters, you blasphemous Satanists. Oh, my God, you're all burning in hell and boycott. The oh, fuck, it was a big deal, I guess. So MTV freaked the fuck out. And essentially, they banned, this is in 88, right? They banned no more dancing videos on our channel, even threatened Rick Rubin, saying, we're not playing anything that you have done, no Slayer, nothing you have anything to do with. Fuck you. You're blacklisted, dude. You fucked up. You shouldn't have done that. And eventually, that kind of went away. But yeah, they, <laughs> it was a big fucking deal back then. Oops. Do you want to know what the song Mother is about? Let me tell you. Danzig says... The song Mother is a direct jab at Tibber Gore and the PMRC and censorship of music in general. Danzig, good for you for telling the PMRC where they could shove it, because I think that's good. Fuck that and fuck censorship of music is really, really stupid. I also read Rick Rubin basically rewrote Mother when they were in the studio more to his liking when they were recording it, because originally Mother was supposed to be kind of like a faster kind of three-chord punk song. I wonder how many of the other songs on that first dancing record Ruben went through and changed. It's probably all the songs that I don't like that he did, like completely change around. Because a lot, some of that stuff was, you know, Sam Hain songs like Twist of Cain and Possession, which are my two favorite songs on that record. Yeah, I wonder how much Ruben went and made them change to where he liked it and just fucked the songs up. But, well, they became very successful for Danzig, so good for them. Now, another thing about the song Mother in that video, the girl that is in that first version, that really gnarly satanic version, right? Satanic, okay, of that Mother video. That girl who gets the chicken uh, 
you know, torn in half above her. And uh, Danzig then proceeds to draw an upside down cross on her stomach with his finger in chicken blood. That's actually Hershey's syrup. It's not real chicken blood, by the way. Yeah. She claimed sometime around 2009 that Danzig had performed a real satanic ritual over her during that video, and that ended up cursing her. No shit. I'm totally serious. That girl's name is Jill Kethel. I will post a video on the website where you can watch her very drunkenly, apparently it looks like, make this claim, and several others talks about like a dream she had where Danzig was marrying her. I don't fuck. Dude, she's fucking nuts, man. Totally nuts. Yeah, oh yeah, I'll post a video to that. Oh, dude, she makes, she rambles on forever. Yeah, check it out on the website. It will be up there. Very, you know, detour-ish through Mother. Mother was important to Danzig's success. However, at this point, Danzig and the band are a huge, huge success and a huge hit. The band went back into the studio to record their fourth full-length record, Danzig 4, or also known as Danzig 4P. Now, the P, the record company, made them put a P after the 4 in the title. It's some weird satanic cult reference thing that they came up with to, like, spice up the title of the record. Oh, don't call it just this. Every other record's like Danzig 2, this, Danzig 3, this, Danzig 4. You just want to call it Dan. Well, apparently Danzig didn't want to call the record anything. He just wanted to put fucking Danzig on it because he drew the artwork for the record cover and he thought any more words over his artwork was going to completely fuck up the aesthetic of that record. He didn't like it. He relented. He said, okay, you can throw your stupid fucking P on the floor and they slapped a sticker on the record itself. Yeah, and there you go. But yeah, think about how bad that would have fucked things up if they just would have called that record the fourth Danzig full length if they would have just called that Danzig as well. Some kid goes into a record store, hey, can I have a copy of, of the Danzig record? Yeah, uh, yeah. which one do you want? Yeah, the Danzig record. The, which Danzig record? There's two. Which The new one. Oh, the new. Wait, is this the new one or that one the new one? Fuck, I, we, somebody needs to put a name on this guy. See, that would be really fucking confusing, I think, wouldn't it? There you go. That's Danzig being weird Danzig again, though, isn't it? I remember I remember how shitty record store people were in the 90s, like the 80s and 90s. You go back to my Skate and Destroy episode about getting treated like shit by record store clerks all throughout, you know, Escondido as a child. They can be shitty, and thank God, at least they put that P on that. That really straightened everything out, didn't it? So good. Okay. On Danzig 4. Based on the success of Danzig, the band and the man, Ruben came back and shared production duties with Danzig. He wasn't involved because he didn't really care about the band anymore, I guess. Well, now that they were making money, all of a sudden he did start caring again. Then Danzig 4, you know what? That record is pretty fucking good. I actually really like it. I, I like, let me, you might be asking yourself right now, Bob, what are your rankings of the Danzig solo records. Up to this point, we're up to Danzig 4 and there's an EP in there. Uh, there's two EPs in there, but what are my rank? I'm just going to give you Danzig 1 through 4 rankings at this point. So here we go. In the number 4 slot, at the very bottom, would be Danzig 3, okay? In the number 3 slot, Danzig 2. The number 2 slot is Danzig 4, the record we're currently speaking about. 
And in the number one spot is that very first Danzig solo record, which I think is absolutely fantastic. I love it. So there you go. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's a lot of numbers, a lot of Danzigs that I said. It's kind of confusing, but hopefully you got it. You know, at the bottom is Danzig 3. At the top is just Danzig. So a couple of things made this release, this Danzig 4 record, unique and different from all the others. This was the very last record that Danzig did on American. American? Who's American? Uh, okay, well, Deaf American changed their name in 1993 to Just American after Rick Rubin saw that the word Deaf, D-E-F, was now in the dictionary, and it didn't have any more street cred. It had no anti-establishment credibility anymore. In fact, they held a fake funeral for Deaf American, over which the Reverend Al Sharpton presided. Yes, a mock funeral for the name of a record label that is the stupidest fucking thing I have ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Fuck. You, Rick Rubin, you fucking did some pretty cool shit, brought some great bands into the limelight. God, he's a fucking weird idiot. I swear to God. Danzig 4 is also notable for the fact that that was the last record with Erie Vaughn, John Christ, and Chuck Biscuits. Yes, the original lineup of the band was on its way out. Here we go. The very first one to leave the band was Biscuits. In 1994, Biscuits either quit or got fired. It's not really too clear. I think he quit first, maybe, after they had recorded Danzig 4, but before the record came out. Now, According to Glenn Danzig, he says Biscuits got fired because Biscuits refused to sign a no-drug policy that was in his contract, as well as a new employment clause in his contract with the band and the record label. Eh, yeah. Danzig also says that the whole band was tired of being Chuck Biscuits' nanny and taking care of him. Well... Erie Vaughn, who I think I trust more than Glenn Danzig, actually, tells a little bit of a different story. Biscuits would become an employee directly under Glenn Danzig for whatever period of time was stipulated in the contract, right? And Biscuits said, fuck, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm a member of the band. I don't work for you, Danzig. I'm a part of this band. Eh, yeah, well, here, let's, let's look into that a little bit. That also, I think, meant that Danzig was trying to screw Biscuits out of royalty money. Of course. Wow. Danzig screwing somebody over royalties? Fuck, that would never happen. Jesus Christ. That guy fucking would screw his own mother out of royalties, it seems like. There was another rumor that after Biscuits quit or got fired or whatever, he tried to rejoin. He said, no, you know what? I changed my mind. I do want to keep going with a band. And Danzig said, nope. Nope. Fuck you. We're, I'm done with you. Okay. Well, no more Biscuits. That's a bummer. Biscuits did go on to become the best goddamn drummer Social Distortion ever had. That may not be saying much, but he did. He he really makes that Social D record that he's on, White Light, White Heat, White Trash, I think. He made that record sound good. That was all fucking Biscuits doing, dude. Yeah. And then he kind of faded away and disappeared. There's some other stuff about him, you know, that's out there. We're not going to get into that. This is about Danzig. I'm sorry. After Biscuits, they hired a guy named Joey Castillo. Joey Castillo was Chuck Biscuits' drum tech from 1990 until 1993. He replaced Biscuits. Joey's history is a little interesting. Joey played drums in L.A.'s Wasted Youth, and he would move, go on to become Danzig's drummer for almost the next 10 years, making him, Joey Castillo, the longest member of Danzig other than Danzig himself. Yeah, interesting, right? Huh. 
The next person out of the band was John Christ, followed very quickly, actually simultaneously, by Erie Vaughn. In fact, they both quit on July 5th of 1995. According to Erie Vaughn, in his book Misery Obscura, John Christ had been unhappy in the band for a long time and felt it was no longer a group effort and it was just Glenn's band. The loss of Biscuits also compounded his unhappiness. That was a big loss for the band, right? A huge fucking loss for the band. So he quit. Now, Erie says he quit because John quit. And Biscuits had was already gone. They had already done a tour with Joey Castillo, I guess. Like they did a Marilyn Manson corn tour. Oh, this poor guy. I'd quit after that shit too, man. Even though I did like some of Marilyn Manson stuff. That guilty pleasure, for sure. But yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So Biscuits was already gone. Christ quit. Erie Bond said, I could not see continuing on in this band without my two friends. They were great friends. They had been in a band for a long, long time together, right? Erie Bond also had some back problems. It was making it tough to keep playing and touring. Now, I, something to keep in mind about Erie Bond, too. He had known Danzig since the very, very early days of the Misfits. He was in the Sam Hain for the whole run of Sam Hain, started off on drums, Ended up on bass kind of thing. Erie was a founding member of the Danzig Band. Erie says in his book, Misery Obscura, that what he was most upset about after he quit the band was Danzig's reaction to his quitting. Erie called him and said, look, I'm, Biscuits is gone. John's quitting. My back's fucked up. I'm leaving, dude. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not into it without those guys. It's just not going to be the same. Danzig didn't say anything to him. Didn't say like... Hey, we've been through a lot together. We've been friends for years and years and years, like 12 years. You know, please stay. Let's try and work this out. Nothing like that. Dancing just told him, eh, you know, call me if you need anything. Click. And that was it. He was like, oh, okay. Well, after many, many years of friendship, that was it. I'm sure Dancing did feel betrayed at that point. I mean, he lost, like, his whole band was gone. He had this new guy on drums that he barely knew or whatever. Well, I guess he probably knew him a little bit, seeing as the guy was Biscuit's drum tech for a few years or whatever. But still, he hadn't been playing with the guy for very long. Yeah, that kind of put Danzig in a bad position. Yeah, that's about it, I guess. I mean, this is really the end now of any version of Danzig that I give, like, two shits about, period. I really don't. I mean, Danzig, he's still active pretty much to this day i think his last record came out in 2017 you know other than doing the misfits reunion stuff the last like real danzig record came out in 2017 and it's a giant steaming pile of shit too apparently i haven't even heard it i don't even want to i know i've heard some of the other new stuff you know it's not like oh god i'm gonna scratch my ears out bad but it's not good it really really is not good i could care less about the new dancing stuff you know it's kind of like strangely enough to say it but the way i feel about dancing the band now is kind of like the way a lot of people felt about the original misfits after dancing quit people stopped giving a shit about them that's how i feel about dancing now the dancing without biscuits Erie Vaughn and John Christ is absolutely not the same band at all. There's the soul of the band is missing, even though Danzig is really kind of the focus. Danzig's the brain, the band, those three guys were the heart with them out. Eh. And all those dudes, I would say, in all this, you know, all this research that I did and all this, those dudes all seem like they were really genuine, like nice dudes. They really do. 
So that makes it even harder for me to appreciate any version of Danzig that comes after. You could have the greatest guys in the world in it, but it's like, no, no, no. Those other guys, they were cool. They were nice dudes. They were good dudes. You know, fuck this new band. The last thing I think that I will leave you with regarding the band Danzig is one other record that came out during the original Danzig lineup, and that was 1992's Black Aria. Oh, yes, Black Aria. That is a classical music record. And you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a poorly made video game soundtrack. It really, fuck, it's off. You got to check it out on YouTube. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah, it's kind of a joke. Oh, speaking of jokes, how do you think Danzig stores his capes and, you know, like his funeral shrouds and stuff like that? Oh, he just, he puts some goth balls in there. Goth, the G-O-T-H ball. Oh, that joke wasn't as good as the short ones. I'm sorry about that. Yes, go on YouTube, look up Black Aria or Aria or however the fuck you say it, and listen to it for about 10 seconds and then go shoot yourself in the foot because that shit's fucking terrible. Here we go with a few words about my friends at Plan 9 Ale House. After that, we'll come back. There will be some stuff about what the real Glenn Danzig is all about. So stay tuned. Quick question for you. What does Plan 9 Ale House have in common with all the major American breweries around today? The answer is nothing. Nothing at all. Plan 9 actually does make good beer. Well, speaking of questions and trivia, head down to Plan 9 Ale House for live prize trivia every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. where you can test your knowledge of the trivial and win either a $5, $10, or $25 gift certificate to Plan 9 Ale House. That's right. You can win actual prizes at Plan 9 for live prize trivia. Those are gift certificates to Plan 9 Ale House, some of the best food and beer around. So get down to Plan 9 Ale House. I would really question your sanity if you did not. Live prize trivia every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., Plan 9 Ale House is located at 155 East Grand Avenue in Escondido, California. You can reach them by phone at 760-489-8817 or on the internet at www.plan9alehouse.com. Plan 9 Ale House, beer to the people. And I am back. Thank you, Plan 9 Alehouse. With all this information about Danzig's early life, his solo band, what else can there be left to talk about with Glenn Danzig? What else, indeed? I've never really talked too much about what Glenn Danzig is like as a person. What, what are Danzig's dreams, his hopes, his desires? I have talked a little bit in this episode about the things he was into when he was a kid, not much changed when he became an adult, for sure. I mean, he's still into comics, horror movies, B-movies, you know, occult subjects, scary books. Those are all things he continues to appreciate to this day. But let's get a little personal with uh, Glenn Allen Anzalone here, a.k.a. Glenn Danzig. First off, you have an idea of how much Glenn and Jerry sued each other, right? Did you know that Danzig also sued Rick Rubin for unpaid royalties and the right to the Danzig band's unreleased songs? Eh. 
How that lawsuit went, I really don't know. In an interview Danzig did in 2007 on a website called InvisibleOranges.com, Danzig told the interviewer that he was still waiting for accountings from the record label and that there were still problems here and there. This interviewer for this InvisibleOranges.com claimed Danzig was kind of a dick. That's why I was referencing back to these lawsuits, because lawsuits kind of can seem to be like a dick move, right? The interviewer also did say he felt like Danzig might have been kind of sick of the press at the time of the interview and was just kind of being shitty. I get it. I get it. One thing in that interview, when I read it, that really sticks out for me is when the interviewer asked Glenn Danzig about like Hot Topic and the culture of punk, this was Danzig's quote. Danzig says, now it's too PC. Punk was very un-PC. Everyone's trying to be so politically correct. That's not what punk was about. Punk was about saying whatever the fuck you felt like. And if you piss people off, even better. Now next, Danzig was asked if he still felt like he was punk. To which he replied, certainly more than any of those other fucking poser losers. Okay, okay. Oh, you angry little old man, you. Jesus Christ. He does come off like an asshole with that statement a little bit. A little bitter. A little like, well, back when I was a punk, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I know. I did a whole fucking podcast about back when I was a punk. So I get it. Danzig, okay, you're just having a bad day probably. Let's talk about Danzig's politics. He has some pretty interesting views on politics and, uh, you know, on the conspiracy level stuff. He has some really interesting views. Uh, uh, in this interview I mentioned above, this Invisible Oranges interview, Danzig is talking about a new book that he just got, and it was all about something called Atlantean Viril, v, spelled V-R-I-L, and how you could make a super weapon out of it, like a sonic weapon, and about all the powers, the major powers of World War II, how they were searching for this Atlantean Viril in order to make this weapon to beat the other guys into submission. Uh, yeah, that's like next level. That's like believing in Atlantis level conspiracy shit. And that's pretty intense. I, that's to me, that's really fucking intense. I think. Whoa. Now, also Danzig claims that the FBI had a file on him for a long time and his band during the late '80s for his like supposed satanic activities and occult stuff. Blah blah blah. Whatever. Maybe they actually really did. Danzig has also claimed that every assassination of any U.S. president was carried out by the U.S. government itself, not like a lone wolf or anything like that. It was all orchestrated by the government to kill the head of said government. At least Danzig's not a flat earther, right? Or is he? Is he? I ooh, I don't know. I couldn't find I tried looking. Is Danzig a, a flat earther? Google that. You won't get shit. You'll get some weird stuff, but is Glenn Danzig a flat earther? He might be. I couldn't find anything to confirm or deny it, so I don't want to make that claim, but I don't mean to stick that, you know, little bug in your ear. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to go into all the conspiracy stuff that Danzig is into because we would be here all fucking night. He is into a bunch of weird conspiracy stuff. The guy is a voracious reader, which no fault in him. I think that's rad. That's incredible. He reads some strange fucking books, though. He does, and that's cool, too. I think he might believe it a little bit too much, though, and that's a little bit weird. Politics-wise, 
he seems to be kind of a middle-of-the-road kind of guy, but a little bit on the weird side, if you ask me. In his words, he says he's a conservative on some issues, and he's more liberal on other issues. Danzig also states he is pro-abortion and pro-Planned Parenthood, but he doesn't think Planned Parenthood should be, quote, selling baby parts like a chop shop in Brooklyn, end quote. Uh, And that, my friends, is a reference to this right-wing piece of shit's efforts to demonize Planned Parenthood of a few years ago by spreading massive lies about them. Holy fuck, yeah, this guy's a piece of shit. His name, this dude's who Danzig bought into this guy's bullshit. His name was uh, David Deleden. I'm not. I don't even care if I say this fucker's name right. David Deleden. He got in big trouble for putting out a bunch of faked and like fabricated abortion videos and videos of like abortion supposed abortion doctors talking about like eyeballs falling on their laps while they were performing abortions and. Apparently, Danzig did fall for that. Danzig has also stuck up for Donald Trump's Muslim travel ban, stating, quote, It's not really a travel ban. When you walk into the country, we want to see who you are and what you're doing. Well, when I go to every country right now, they look at me and they see whether I can come in or not. And I've been turned away from Canada and other places before. Where's my protest? Where's my parade? End quote. Fucking Dan. Yeah, asshole. That's, he sounds more like a weird conspiracy theorist, libertarian, self-centered asshole to me. Like, kind of selfish and kind of naive. Where's my parade? Where's my participation trophy? And man, shove that fucking bullshit up your ass, you fucking morons. Has Glenn Danzig ever been married? Had a girlfriend, a boyfriend, or anything like that? No, not that I have. I can't find anything about his personal life in that respect. The rumor is... He is a very, very private guy with his personal stuff. No fault on him whatsoever for that. I don't blame him. He's a celebrity, dude. Yeah, I do not blame him at all for keeping his personal life, his business, and keeping anything he does in his personal life out of the spotlight except for going to the grocery store for kitty litter, excessive amounts of kitty litter. That is, I don't know. We could go on and on talking about these weird little details about Danzig I'm just going to sum up right now, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kill this, <laughs> nip it in the bud, so to speak, you know, pour the uh, kitty litter over the poop in the litter box at this point by saying this about Danzig. It was all my opinion, of course. I think the guy, I think Glenn Danzig is a little bit of a misunderstood genius, though politically he's kind of a moron. I do think, though, he is kind of a misunderstood genius. He's an insanely creative guy. He's kind of a nerd. You know, he's really into comics, horror stuff, Japanese animation, etc. He's an extremely, extremely talented guy, even though he may not have always made music that I appreciate. I think his level of talent is fucking just off the charts. I really do. I truly, truly do. Is he an asshole? Eh, yeah, sure. Just like everybody else. Yes, he is. Maybe a little bit more than your average person. Sure. He's done some shitty things, for sure. And usually those shitty things are directed at people that he's been in bands with, people that he's been close with. Biscuits is kind of a good example, maybe. Making him sign that bullshit contract if he wanted to stay in the band. Jerry, you know, as much shit as I talk about Jerry. I think he did do Jerry a little bit wrong, too. 
And I've stated that before for sure. You know, the whole royalties thing, man, it was kind of fucked up. He's bad about royalties. We know that. We know that for a fact, don't we? Yes, we truly do. In Danzig's defense, though, I want to say, I think Danzig has his own way of doing things. And you know what? If you don't like it, you don't have to work with a guy. Too bad. I'm sorry. It sucks. But there it is. You know, Danzig is Danzig. That's all there is to it. He's a very hardworking guy. If he has a vision or an idea for something he wants to do, he wants to do it, and he wants to do it on his terms. So there you go. Now, the only thing, there are two people in all these stories that kind of give me pause when I think about Danzig and want to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt and say, like, well, he is who he is. He does what he does. Get over it kind of thing, right? Bobby Steele and Erie Vaughn. And those two guys and the kind of the way that they got treated in some ways at the very end of their relationships with Danzig make me kind of think that Danzig might be an actual like real dickhead. Maybe he is because Bobby Steele got fucked. You know, that was kind of more Jerry's doing. Supposedly Jerry convinced Danzig, but Danzig still kicked the guy out, right? I mean, it was still like ruthless enough to kick him out. The band would have much been much different without Doyle in it, I think. But, you know, Bobby Steele, they could have had both guys. Okay, there you go. Erie Vaughn, his leaving the band, dancing like refuses to work with the guy ever again, that kind of thing. Yeah, that means Danzig holds a grudge. He's a little nuts, I think, and he holds a grudge. So I want to say, you know, I have reached out to both those guys, to Bobby Steele and Erie Vaughn. I haven't heard back from either one of them yet. Bobby Steele I reached out to back in October of 2019. Erie Vaughn, eh, you know, only about a week ago or so. Hopefully I hear from them. I don't want to talk to them just about their relationships with Danzig, so that would be very, very interesting, I think. I also want to talk to them about their deal, you know, what they did, how they felt, what they were going through when they were in the bands they were in with Glenn Danzig and just their lives in general. It'd be super cool, super, super interesting. There might be more to the segment. If those guys get back to me, like I was alluding at at the beginning, this is kind of what I was talking about. There might be more. I'm sorry to get all George Lucas on you and say, um, there's going to be, an, you know, there will be another trilogy coming out soon. Um, this, well, I promise, won't be all CGI bullshit, by the way, either. This will be the real deal, you know, me talking to them, hopefully. And there we go. Hope you enjoyed our time exploring Danzig and all things Danzig related. It's I'm sure I missed some stuff. I do want to apologize for that. There's some key things I'm sure I missed. So I do want to say it's been a very, very interesting road for me through these three episodes. Really cool. Super, super cool. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. I do want to mention a couple sources that I did use specifically for this episode. The big one, the biggest one, is Erie Vaughn's super, super rad book, Misery Obscura. That's Erie's kind of photo collection and a collection of his stories from the early days of the Misfits, like I think 1980, up until Erie was out of Danzig in the 90s. So there's some great, great stuff in that book. You can buy it on Amazon for like 25 bucks. I, personally, I got a copy from my wife for Christmas Bless her for that. Very, very awesome, I should say. Yes, I absolutely love the book. I've been through it like three times since I got it on Christmas. Here we are. Today's January 8th. So, yeah, I've like devoured this book. Dude, it's an incredible book. Get it. I will post links to where you can buy it on the website. 
I also got some information from my usual main source, which is Wikipedia, which is kind of like the base of where I get a lot of little information that leads me through all these rabbit holes of different things. Thank you to Wikipedia. You are invaluable to me for sure. Definitely give Wikipedia some money if you can. I will. So there you go. Another source is from a website called invisibleoranges.com. And another was from a Vice magazine interview. I will post links to both of those interviews on my website once this podcast is up in a couple days for your internet viewing pleasure. Last thing, I'm going to leave you with a Misfits song that is 100% Danzig, okay? Very, very Danzig. A cover of the song American Nightmare by Argentina's The Broken Toys. Definitely a change of pace for the Bobcast here, for sure. But it's still very fun and a great song. I love it. Thank you so much to the guys in The Broken Toys for letting me use this song. And I'm sorry about our language barrier. We really didn't get much of a chance to talk. But you guys are super, super cool for letting me do that. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review me wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. What's dressed in black and knocks on a window? Danzig in a microwave. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Thanks again for listening. Here are Argentina's The Broken Toys with the song American Nightmare. Thank you very much. American Nightmare Running